All right, as mentioned at the top of the show, I heard some really good radio this last week, one of which was, I think, on for the forum program on KQED. I'm not sure. But they were talking about arenas. The guest, whose name escapes me at the moment, was explaining that although it's hard to find anything that economists will agree upon, one exception to that is that it is pretty much universally understood across the board by every different type of economist. The one thing you can count on is the fact that sports arenas are a bad deal. He cited a study of a baseball team, noting its impact uh, to a city, and said that even though they play 81 games a year in a baseball season, the impact locally to the city in question was thought to be about the same as that of a mid-sized department store. So here in our state capital, as we look at the spectacle of this King's Arena going in downtown, and to put it in, they're taking out all kinds of mid-sized department stores, including Macy's that was apparently taken out in part through eminent domain. Thank you very much, Tony Kennedy. Well, we predicted on this program before that this is going to be the death of downtown Sacramento, and this seems to be bolstering our argument. And yes, there's been a lot of talk about how the arena foes are trying to put forth all sorts of legal angles to stop this project, but uh, we think it's all for naught. The fix is in. We were hip to that when all the signatures gathered to get that uh, measure on the ballot so voters would get a chance to say whether they approved this giant subsidy to millionaires. Well, the truth is, they knew that wasn't going to pass uh, muster with the voters, so they just tossed out all of the petitions to that effect. Pretty disgusting. Also disgusting is, what are they going to do with the Sleep Train Arena, formerly known as Arco Arena, which we kept being reminded was just, it was very old. It was an old stadium. Who knows what's going to happen? Natomas leaders are saying they hope for a hospital or a college campus. Sure, I would think, I don't know much about architecture, but I would think an arena would be really easy to convert into a college campus. Oh, and just a sidelight to this whole story, apparently the King's owners have 84 acres out there in North Natomas, including the arena, and they're going to receive 100 city-owned acres next year as part of Sacramento's $255 million contribution to the downtown arena financing plan. But uh, there's apparently a new book out, Circus Maximus, The Economic Gamble Behind Hosting the Olympics and the World Cup, which kind of dovetails with this story. To quote from The Economist, Following the extensive media coverage of the economics of the London and Sochi Olympics and Brazil's World Cup, it should be no surprise that these lofty assurances of economic benefits rarely come to fruition. But noted the magazine, even appropriately jaded readers are likely to be shocked by the evidence in Circus Maximus. They note that uh, the book leaves little doubt that under current conditions, prudent city governments should avoid these contests at all costs. They note that perhaps the only encouraging finding in this work is that potential hosts are getting wise to the bad deal that the IOC and FIFA, those are the supporters of the Olympics and the World Cup respectively, seek to foist on them. Twelve different cities bid for the 2004 Olympics, whereas the 2020 edition drew just five applicants. After Oslo dropped out last October, only two cities, Beijing and Almaty, Kazakhstan, are now candidates to host the 2022 Winter Olympics. Proving further support for a prediction in a 2012 report commissioned by the Dutch government that in the future only non-democratic countries will pay to host these events. 
Well, it could be. They certainly kept democracy out of this whole arena plan in downtown Sacramento. And uh, speaking of financial fiascos, we did have to note with some amusement that apparently the Dixon movie studio hearing related <laughs> to the court case against Carissa Carpenter, who managed to convince the people in Dixon that a major movie studio project could be put into the farmland around Dixon. Well, apparently Carpenter's defense counsel in the wake of uh, the city government providing approximately 68,000 pages of discovery has said he just needs more time to look it over, and they've postponed that hearing. And before we leave this stadium issue, let's, let's do a piece uh, from the New York Times by Joe Nocera talking about what's going on in Los Angeles as to regards bringing a new sports team to the area. Apparently, the St. Louis Rams, formerly the Los Angeles Rams, are talking about moving back. The Oakland Raiders, formerly the Los Angeles Raiders, are talking about moving back. And the San Diego Chargers, who I believe at one point were the L.A. Chargers, are talking about moving back. But doggone it, they want a new stadium. Does this sound familiar? Jonas Sarah asked, how does a billionaire NFL owner get taxpayers to pay $500 million to build him a new stadium? Well, by threatening to move the team to Los Angeles. The San Diego Chargers, like the Minnesota Vikings before them, are now employing this scheme with their ownership announcing last week they're considering a move to L.A. Al Davis pulled this crap before, too. And I, th I think the city of Oakland still has something like $100 million in debt to pay off, thanks to the chicanery involving the Raiders. Nocera asked the question, why do cities keep caving in? Building a new stadium, research shows, does little to boost local economies. And all the profits the team makes go straight into the pockets of wealthy owners. But he says the NFL knows that having a pro franchise makes cities like San Diego, Oakland, Minneapolis, or Baltimore feel big time whereas losing a franchise is perceived as a demotion to second-rate status. So the billionaire's blackmail scheme goes on. Yeah, you remember a uh, former NFL player and current Sacramento mayor Kevin Johnson talking about how having a new stadium and keeping the Kings would make Sacramento a world-class city? Yep, people do fall for that nonsense. And here's something we have to talk about regarding the NFL. Piece in Slate by Jordan Weissman a few months ago notes that the NFL generates about $9.5 billion in revenue each year. It is, according to Forbes, the most valuable sports league in the world. Commissioner Roger Goodell makes $44 million a year, and yet the NFL's head office has long been allowed to operate as a tax-exempt nonprofit, as if its sole purpose for existence wasn't to extract wads of cash from the wallets of American sports fans. How is it a sports league can operate as a non-profit? Well, we think the answer is you have to purchase enough political clout. We also have to do some, uh, some follow-up on some bad science. And Mr. Miller, do you have some appropriate music for this next item? Elastic tubes and pots and pans, bits and Yes, we thought it was some pretty weird science coming out of UC Davis when people we think should have known better suggested last year that they now had an explanation for why zebras have stripes. Looking at a map where they found zebras and looking at a map where they found tsetse flies, it was argued that, well, the zebras have stripes on them so they don't get bit by tsetse flies. Well, we were skeptical and we're happy to report that the Royal Society of Open Science 
now cites a study of 29 environmental variables and has found that the number and thickness of black stripes on zebras are best explained by temperature rather than the presence of predators or biting flies, as has been suggested. Of course, this whole method of seeing where things correlate and coming into conclusions is... is I'm not sure this really is science. Oh, it's, it's kind of science-y, all right. But it's very hard to make a determination of cause. Well, actually, it's probably impossible to make a determination of cause using such inferences. And uh, mark our words, we're sure this battle over zebra stripes is not over yet. We will continue to follow it as it develops. I want to talk about, well, astronomic stuff because we just can't get enough of it. Particularly when it concerns the red planet Mars. We now have something like seven operating spacecraft on or around the red planet. And, of course, we're trying to resolve all the mysteries, all the things we don't understand about uh, our planetary neighbor. But wouldn't you know it, something's come out of the blue that's a very strange story that all of our satellites and, and rovers are apparently shedding no light on. This being the fact that on two occasions in the spring of 2012, amateur astronomers spotted a cloud developing on the surface of the red planet. But not just any cloud. People have noticed clouds on Mars since... They first started looking at it with telescopes. This thing appeared to be more a mysterious plume of gas rising more than 150 miles above the Martian surface. These plumes then spread out and spanned about 600 miles in diameter and changed shape constantly. They appeared within a few hours and remained visible for about 10 days before vanishing. And wouldn't you know it, none of our spacecraft could shed any light on this phenomenon. Although scientists did go back to look at some archived uh, Hubble telescope photographs of Mars and found a similar plume took place back in 1997. Now, if you think about it, shooting something out 150 miles off the surface of a planet takes it above the atmosphere. Well, for all intents and purposes, anyway. Which means, in short, that not only do we not understand what this thing was caused by, we don't understand how it acted once it showed up. Spanish astronomer Agustin Sanchez La Vega was quoted as saying, any explanation we can think of challenges our understanding of the upper atmosphere of Mars. Which is the cool thing about studying anything, isn't it? Learning about almost anything tends to open up new mysteries, which themselves then have to be resolved. But then they, of course, open up new mysteries and so on. But that's just the nature of science. And you know, I wish we had more time on this program because we've got so many things I want to talk about. There's a piece um, in New Scientist magazine, cover story actually, about algorithms that's worth a little discussion. We don't have time to delve into this in much detail today, but the piece does mention a piece of software called CrossCheck, which is an algorithm used to supposedly police voter fraud, as reported on this program, thanks to Greg Pallast and others. Um, this has been a tool used by politicians to scrub the voter rolls of, you know, well, certain undesirable people who might try to vote while black. Also, maybe try to vote while Asian, also maybe try to vote while Latino. The Economist notes that with the algorithms being employed, minorities are, yes, hit the hardest. The names scrubbed are disproportionately those of black, Asian, and Hispanic voters, who, after all, are somewhat more likely to share names like Jackson, Kim, or Garcia. Apparently a little-known factoid out of the Edward Snowden uh, leakage from the National Security Agency is that the NSA uses algorithms to decide whether a person is a U.S. citizen. And if the NSA conveniently decides that you're not, then it's free to do much more 
aggressive capturing of your data. And hidden algorithms um, may have played a part in the 2008 subprime mortgage crash. Apparently been between 2000 in 2007, U.S. lenders like Countrywide Home Loans and Deep Green doled out their loans at an unprecedented rate via automated online applications. They quote Dan Power at the University of Northern Iowa saying, everyone was saying what a great innovation it was. Everybody was very high on these fast web-based loans. No one anticipated the problem. We must probably talk about algorithms at some point in the future because there was one little piece I heard, I think it was on NPR, last week about how it was that when there was a stock downturn, about how it was that hackers apparently got into Reuters and inserted some phony story about bombs going off at the White House. Although this story was a fabrication because they hacked into an accepted news site, I believe it was Reuters, it went all around the world and was immediately accepted. And since a lot of trading of the stock market is based on algorithms that inspect what's coming across uh, the news desk, um, apparently the stock market lost $136 billion in value as a result of automated trades resulting from this bad news that was phony. Clearly, Internet security is something that is... uh, going to be ever more important in our future. Of course, we don't want to give too much credit to computers when it comes to fouling things up. Human beings are probably still at the top of the list. I want to cite a piece in the WashingtonPost.com by Terrence McCoy saying that if you doubt man-made climate change, then Wei Hawk Soon isn't just your man, he's your high priest. Turns out that Mr. Soon is not a climate scientist, but a physicist who works for the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics. He's forged a career out of asserting that global warming isn't caused by humans, but largely by variations in the sun's energy. Climate change skeptics love Soon, and they cite his work frequently. But would you know it, it turns out that Soon is not what he seemed to be. This week, documents obtained through the Freedom of Information Act revealed that Soom's climate research was funded by at least $1.2 million from ExxonMobil, Southern Company, the American Petroleum Institute, and the Charles G. Koch Charitable Foundation, all groups with strong financial stakes in denying global warming. I am shocked to discover there's gambling going on here. And when it comes to gambling, what's more of a gamble than marriage? How's that for a segue? Which leads us to this item from the goofball file, which frankly we find irresistible. But the story is this. An Indian bride married a guest at her own wedding after her fiancé fell ill at the altar. Yes, apparently when groom Jugal Kishore, age 25, was about to exchange his vows, he suffered an apparent epileptic fit. He was then rushed to the hospital. Furious that she'd not been apprised of Kishore's medical condition, the 23-year-old bride, Indira, asked a member of her brother-in-law's family to marry her on the spot instead. By the time Kishore returned to the venue from the hospital, (laughs) the couple was wed. And although he protested by filing a complaint with the police, said an officer, since the bride is already married, what can anyone do? Anyway, we imagine that Jugal Kishore 
probably needed a drink after all that. Which leads us right up to our final item of the show, which is a, a piece which fleshes out something we reported on a while back. But I so much like the way the piece was written up by Mike Weiner for Yahoo News that I want to just quote from it directly. Yes, we've all been down there, not just Jugal Kishore. We've all been down there. We've been in the dumps after a bad breakup or a date that just didn't go the way we'd hoped. And it's during those trying times when a good drink sounds like the best thing in the world. And it turns out that humans are not alone in that notion. A new, somewhat humorous study by the University of California, San Francisco, has proven that fruit flies turn to alcohol after being rejected by the opposite sex. Yes, the experiment consisted of placing a male and female fruit fly in a plastic dish along with both alcoholic and non-alcoholic food sources. The researchers found that the male flies who got rejected after their courtship attempts turned to the booze much more frequently than suitors who were deemed acceptable. The speculation is that the reason for the fly's reluctance on alcohol is tied to the release of neuropeptide F, a pleasurable chemical released during courtship. When the flies consumed the booze, the chemical is also released, allowing them to self-medicate, much like some human depression sufferers do. It's noted that this research may lead to better treatment for depression and anxiety patients and perhaps allow more individuals to kick drink for good. There's a tear in my beer cause I'm crying for you, dear. You are on my lonely mind. That about does it for today's program, which was produced, as they all are, by Edward McMillan. Our thanks to Joan Mellon, who's done some excellent work over the years in the JFK case and a whole lot of other stuff. We need to get her back on the show sometime soon. Furthermore, it is our hope on next week's program we'll be able to bring you Emily Lakdawalla of the Planetary Society to talk about the exciting news that the Dawn spacecraft, as of tomorrow, is going to go into orbit around the dwarf planet or asteroid or mysterious body known as Ceres. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax, and we'll see you next week. You are on my lonely mind. Last night I walked the floor, and the night before, you were on my lonely mind. It seems my life is through, and I'm so doggone blue. I'm gonna keep drinking till I can't move a toe And then maybe my heart won't hurt me so There's a tear in my face